0: Okay, this morning we'll be in Genesis chapter 24, and the title of this morning's servant is The Servant Sent to seek a bride. The servant is sent to seek a bride. We've already read Genesis chapter 24 for those listening online, and we had already read a portion, the end of Genesis chapter 22 from verse 20 through 24. So I think uh, those of you listening, you'll appreciate what is said this morning more if you read the whole of Genesis chapter 24, because I tend to cover things in a big picture. So let's ask the Lord to open it unto us in his blessing. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open up your word unto us, that we might have a better appreciation of the gospel might have a better appreciation of whom thou hast chosen out of this world and how you do view them and also just a portion of eschatology uh, what things we might glean from this section uh, to shed light on uh, some of the doctrines and scriptures that thou hast uh, opened up to us in the new testament in jesus name we pray amen, amen. Um, Well, like I said, I like to look at the big picture, which is why I read the whole chapter this morning, So I'm going to be pulling different things from it. But primarily, I'm going to be covering the first several verses in uh, Genesis 24 and be making reference to other things that are written in this chapter as well. Um, Big picture here, you remember in Genesis chapter 22, that was when uh, the Father offered the Son up on Mount Moriah. So what we see in Genesis chapter 22 is the cross, Genesis 23. Uh, 3 speaks of the grave. And Genesis 24 now is speaking about the gospel going forth as a bride is sought for the son. Now, where is Isaac in all this when all this is taking place? Well, he's conspicuously absent. So we would keep that in mind that Isaac is conspicuously absent. The last time he was seen was when he was on Mount Moriah, when his father offered him up And as it tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, that he received him back from the dead in a figure. So God is telling us about as clear as he can that Isaac is a type of Christ, and Abraham the father in Genesis 22 um, is a type of God the father. So we still have this set before us here as we come into uh, Genesis chapter 24. These um, types are set before us here. And so um, just as Christ is presently absent from us, as the Holy Ghost is going out into the world to seek a bride for Christ, so two is Isaac uh, conspicuously absent as his father sends the other servant out to seek a bride for Isaac. So we're going to see this as we as we move here. So big picture here again, uh, Abraham himself is about a hundred and thirty nine years old. We know that Isaac is age forty when a, uh, he marries Rebecca, and that he was a hundred years old when. Um, Isaac was born so right now he's about 139 years old and we can appreciate from all the things that we've studied in the past that he has grown in his faith the um, finest example of it was when he offered up his son with the expectation that he would receive him back from the dead in Genesis chapter 22 he has grown in faith and so it is in faith that he sends forth his eldest servant to find a bride from amongst his people For his son. Now, as a man of faith, he knows that the Lord has blessed him in all things. We read that in verse one, where it says that, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. As a mature Christian, you can look back on your life and see the Lord shepherding you on the way, and you can take a snapshot of where you are now and appreciate that everything you had, you have by his grace. And so, again, we know that the Lord has blessed us in all things. Um, in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, I think it's verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us uh, with all blessings in heavenly places. All the blessings that we have are uh, by virtue of our relationship with Christ, the fact that we are in him. And so all that Christ has, uh, we have in him. And so we're going to see that as we move forward here with respect to Rebecca and Isaac and what things Isaac has in relationship to what Abraham has. So, as a mature Christian and knowing that God has blessed him in all things, he knows that God will continue to do so, as indeed we all should appreciate that God will continue to bless us until such time as he receives us up into glory, in which time we'll uh, be blessed by receiving our um, our glorified uh, bodies. So in verse 7, after a conversation about whether or not God will prosper his journey, he says, you know, that God will send his angel before the servant and... Um, so as to prepare the heart of the son's bride that she will in fact be willing to return with the servant and so we can uh, see a parallel in the new testament when god the father sends before christ john the baptist to prepare the way of the lord to start opening up hearts start getting people to think about the messiah think about their sin and repent from the sin that they have, and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, John the Baptist precedes the um, Christ, the advent of Christ, um, advent meaning when he begins his ministry, as the angel is going to go before the servant here and and open up the heart of the woman who's going to receive um, the blessings from the the servant. In verse 2 and 3 of Genesis chapter 24 here, it says that Abraham makes the servant place his hand under Abraham's thigh and swear that he will follow certain instructions. Now this seems like a rather strange thing unless we can appreciate these things from a typological perspective. And you have to look at this entire thing from a typological um, uh, perspective. Um, Otherwise you'll glean nothing of it other than what a strange thing he would have him do. Put your hand under my thigh, swear that you'll do these things, then go 500 miles away, find a bride for my son, and then bring her back. I mean, that just sounds like a crazy thing to do unless God is teaching us the gospel teaching us about what things he has done for us. So he tells the servant, the elder servant, to place his hand underneath his eye and to swear. And so uh, we read that in verse 1 that Abraham is well stricken in age. So, in a typological perspective, that's kind of leaning towards language that he represents the ancient of days which is language from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, obviously speaking of God the Father. So in our picture here, we have Abraham as God the Father, and the eldest servant here, who we see is, or we can understand, is not the heir, yet he rules over all that he has. He represents the Holy Ghost. Isaac is the heir of all things. This um, servant who rules over all that he has is not the heir, and so he represents the Holy Ghost. Now, Recall back in Genesis chapter 22, verse 16, where we read in the angel of the Lord, which is Christ, um, because he identifies himself as the Lord. In verse 16, it says, And by myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and has not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore and thy seed shall possess the gates of his enemy. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. So this is a clear reference to um, the offering up of God the Son, because that's what we saw in typology that Abraham had just offered up his only begotten beloved Son. So again, with with this typology, we see here that God is swearing by himself that he will bless Abraham and multiply his seed. In Hebrews 6.13, we read that God swore by himself because he could swear by nothing higher. So that is the greatest um, oath that God could take um, is to make an oath upon himself. So here in Genesis chapter 24, verses 2, 3, and 9, we see that the servant is to place his hand underneath the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swear unto him concerning this particular matter. So the question is, what is he swearing on when he does that? When he places his hand under the thigh, what is he swearing on? What is the significance of that? Well, we see this term used again in Genesis chapter 47. In Genesis chapter 47, verses 29 through 31, um, Israel, or Jacob, is making his son Joseph swear that he will do a particular thing. I will read that. In Genesis 47, verse 29, it says... And the time drew nigh that Israel, Jacob, must die. And he called his son Joseph and said unto him, If now I have found grace in thy sight, put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh, and deal kindly and truly with me. Bury me not, I pray thee, in Egypt. But I will lie with my fathers, and thou shalt carry me out of Egypt, and bury me in the burial place. And he said, I will do as thou he said. And he said, Swear unto me, and he swear unto him, and Israel bowed himself upon the bed's head. So Jacob, the father of Joseph, is asking Joseph to swear that he'll carry him up out of Egypt, which we see as a type of the resurrection, or we will when we get there. So it's a type, he's asking him to swear by placing his hand underneath his thigh. So again, we ask ourselves, well, what does this represent? Well, in Genesis 32, verse 25, that's the occasion where God wrestles with Jacob. In Genesis 32, 25, God wrestles with Jacob. And I'll read verse 25. And when he, that would be Christ, saw that he prevailed not against him, he, Christ, touched the hollow of his thigh, of Jacob's thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. So here we can appreciate that the, his thigh represents his strength. And by Christ touching it, he... Um, um, Humbles him, and so uh, Jacob, I suppose, from this point forward in his life is going to be limping around a bit because Christ has touched him and um, um, had an impact on the strength that he would appreciate in his flesh. So it represents the strength of a man. Now, helping us pull all this together, in Genesis chapter 46, we see this word used again this idea of the thigh, and here it's going to tell us what it represents. In Genesis 46, 26, we read, now we're, this is a result of a census is being taken because Jacob and his family are coming down into Egypt. So in Genesis 46:26, it says, all the souls that came with Jacob into Egypt, which came out of his loins, that's the word thigh, which came out of his loins, beside Jacob's son, son's wives." All the souls were three score and six. Now, if you bounce over to um, verses 6 and 7, verse 6 and 7, it talks about what goes down into uh, Egypt. And it says, And they took their cattle and their goods, which they had gotten in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his seed with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his seed brought he with him into Egypt. So when we put all of this together, what we see is what is the strength of a man? It's his progeny. It's his um, descendants. So that which comes out of his, soul, out of his uh, loins or comes out of his thigh are his seed. And so what he's doing here is he is swearing on his progeny because that is what represents his strength. It's his offspring, which in the case of Abraham, in the case of Isaac... And in the case of J- Jacob, is what? It's Christ. Christ is going to come from the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2, the Lord puts the uh, uh, helps us appreciate that our strength is Christ. He says in uh, verse 2 of Isaiah 12, he says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also is become my salvation. Well, who is it that secures our salvation but Christ himself? So this is another one of those verses where we can appreciate that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all one. Christ himself, of course, was the one on the cross and has secured our salvation. He has become our salvation. Um, That has brought a verse to mind that I want to jump to real quick. And see, it's in in 1 Corinthians. Um, no, it's not, that doesn't say what I want it to say is, um, as clear as it is here. So we'll just leave that with Isaiah 12 too. So Abraham, as a type of God here in Genesis chapter 24, he is swearing on his progeny, which is Christ. His progeny is going to be Christ. Now, if you recall back in, uh, or up in John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and my father are one. I and my father are one. So for God the Father... To swear on his progeny, his son, is for God to swear on himself, since he and the father are one, which he does because he can swear by no greater, just as he did back in Genesis chapter 22, verses 16 and 17. So we're seeing this opened up and unfold before us that this is a very serious oath that um, is being extracted, and it's likened to the oath, uh, the covenant between God the father and God the son. So the promise of uh, Genesis chapter 24 in verses 3 and 4 here, what that promise is, that's the promise to build the church from the Father's people. It is the promise to choose from amongst whom he foreknew and whom he elected unto salvation that those people and only those people will be um, chosen for the bride of the Son of God. Um, There is a protocol that will be specifically followed. There will be a place uh, from amongst which people shall be taken, and there are particular people that will be chosen. It does not include everybody, but there are certain people appointed to obtain salvation. That's language from 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, people that are appointed to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ did not die for everyone, but only to those appointed unto salvation. So we have a wonderful um, doctrinal truth from the New Testament. Um, We see it manifest itself here in terms of the instruction that the father is giving the servant in terms of um, who he will choose for a bride for the wife or how he will know and where he will go. So the question comes up in verses 5 and in verse 8 here of Genesis chapter 24. And the servant said unto him, Peradventure, the woman will not be willing to follow me unto this land. Must I needs bring my son again to the land from whence thou camest? And he says in verse 8, And if the woman will not be willing to follow thee, then thou shalt be clear from this my oath. Only bring not my son thither again. So the question is, what if the woman is not willing? I find some humor in that question. Um, Well, the answer is here, of course, that um, he will be free from the oath. Um, It is not his responsibility that this uh, mission be successful any more than it is your and my responsibility that when we go forth to preach the gospel that they would in fact receive it, that the truth of the gospel would be impressed upon their heart. That is not our job. Our job is to be Obedient unto what the Lord has said in Mark chapter 16, verse 15, when the Lord says, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It is God who must send his angel before us to, to prepare the hearts of those that might receive the gospel. We cannot impress that truth upon anybody. And I know you have preached the gospel to people and have had that uh, Blank stare at you, if not that, if not a look of hostility, when you are doing that. And again, it is not up to us to make a cogent argument about whether or not. Uh, I mean, to make such a cogent argument that they find themselves in a corner and that there's nothing that they can do uh, except receive the gospel. You know, the, the Apostle Paul speaks about that with respecting himself when he preaches the gospel in First Corinthians chapter two. He says. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not, was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of the power." that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so we go forth and we preach the gospel. And Paul says of himself in another place that his speech is rude and contemptible. He certainly writes well because he's moved by the Holy Spirit to declare the things that he does. But when he preached them, he said he was uh, rude. His speech was rude and contemptuous, contemptuous. And I can certainly appreciate that. So... You don't want to um, browbeat somebody into um, receiving the gospel, because if they do, it'll just be an um, academic or intellectual appreciation of it, and they will soon fall away from it because it never took root um, in their heart. Um, it would be like trying to convince a woman to marry a man uh, and a... Um, and putting before her, let's say, some material characteristics and concerns of the husband, she might agree to it for a time, but then she's going to divorce him and walk away from it because it wasn't in her heart to do so. So in verse 7, he says here that the angel of the Lord will go before him and the angel of the Lord will prepare their heart for them. And the Lord does that the same thing with us. In Philippians 2.13, we read that it is God who works in us, to will and to do of his good pleasure. Jesus says that of himself. He says that all that whom the Father will give me shall come to me, and he will raise them up on the last day. So whomever the Father gives to the Son, they will come and they will be made willing um, in the day of visitation. Um, God having made uh, us willing, working in us to will and to do of uh, his good pleasure, um, certainly applies in the case, which is really what I'm talking about, of him placing the truth in our hearts. It is God who has to place in our hearts the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's Second Corinthians 2. Chapter 4, verse 6, God who shined the light out of darkness hath to shine in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's got to be in the heart. It cannot be just in the head because it won't take root there. It's got to be in the heart. In verse 7 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Lord then says, and we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We have this treasure. We have this knowledge. This treasure of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have that in earthen vessels. In other words, we have it in an unclean earthen vessels, which is symbolized by the fact that when the servant goes out and he's going to be carrying these treasures with him to the bride, the future bride, um, they are going to be carried upon camels, which are unclean beasts. So sitting upon unclean beasts are those that are going to bear witness of Abraham and Isaac's glory just as within our unclean vessels, because the Lord says that all of our righteousnesses are as an unclean thing. We go forth in these earthen vessels, and we uh, share the um, treasures that God has given us with people that we witness to. So this servant is going to bear witness of Abraham and Isaac's glory. Isaac, of course, is appointed heir of all things. And uh, we read that in verse 20, verse 36 of 24 it says unto him hath he given all that he hath everything that abraham has is to be given unto isaac in genesis 25 in verse 5 it says the same and abraham gave all that he had unto isaac and the next verse it talks about how he uh, the other children the other sons that he had which were by the concubines he gave gifts and he sent them away but Isaac is the appointed heir of all things. Language we see, of course, uh, of Christ himself in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, where it says that he's the appointed heir of all things. So big picture again in terms of what is set before us here, respecting the gospel and about where to find a wife and whether or not the son should go back to Mesopotamia and live with the bride there. Um, we see that that's not going to happen. He says that... Don't do that. Do not take my son back. He tells us that twice. Um, So step back a little bit, big picture here. Where is Abraham? Abraham is living in the promised land, the land that has been promised to him, which in Romans chapter four, the Lord tells us that he's talking about the cosmos. So we know that Abraham is going to receive the new heaven and the new earth. That's where Abraham is. And that's where Isaac is. Think of them as being in glory. Now, the city of Nahor is in Mesopotamia, as it says down there in verse 10. And we know that's in Babylon. And guess what? That is this present evil world. We are living in Babylon. And God's elect, the word used is appointed here in verse 14 and in verse 44, they are this person who is appointed. I'll read that. And in verse 14, this is the servant praying, And let it come to pass, that the damsel whom I shall say, Let down thy pitcher, I pray thee, that I may drink, and she shall say, Drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. Quote, Let the same be she that thou, that would be the angel, or that would be God of Abraham, that, she, um, that thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac. So there's an individual whom God has appointed to be the bride of, of isaac and verse 44 he repeats it um, i will draw for thy camels let the same be the woman whom the lord hath appointed for my master's son so we see the doctrine of election self begin to manifest itself here in terms of who will be the bride of the beloved only begotten son now We know that it's a woman in verse 16, it's a virgin, it's described as a virgin, and also in verse 16, it says, neither hath any man known her. Verse 16, she's also described as very fair. The word fair there is the word good. She's very good to look upon. Now, that's a characteristic that applies to other women in the scriptures, most notably Sarah, who also typifies the church. Um, Recall in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, that we read, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good to look upon. The ultimate objective of what God is doing is to create a church for his son, a temple in which God will live, and a group of people that constitute the temple. So when God is finished with all this, when he's called everybody in, he's going to look upon it and he's going to say that it is very good to look upon. So we see that in these women. Sarah is very fair to look upon, and Rebecca is very fair to look upon. They obviously represent the church. So the church, Rebecca, the bride of Christ, or Isaac, is very fair to look upon, though in our context we might not have always been so as we walk around this earth. You know, in 1 Timothy 1.15, It says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ came in the world to save sinners. And Paul says, of whom I am chief. So there was a time when we were pretty ratty in terms of the way we behaved ourselves, but that's not the way God saw us. We know that in scriptures it says that we were sinners when God commended his love towards us. And uh, when Christ died for us, we were sinners. We were enemies when God reconciled us to Himself through His Son. Uh, Both of those come from Romans chapter 5, verse 8 and 10. We were, as the Bible will describe us in the book of James, adulterers and adulteresses in the context that we were committing spiritual fornication in love with the elements of the world and whatever idols we had set up in our own hearts. That's the reality of who we were. We are all as an unclean thing clothed in the filthy rags of our righteousnesses and our iniquities had taken us away. When all of this was true, God sent forth his son, of course, to uh, redeem us. Now, in Isaiah 64, 6, we can appreciate that God sent his elder servant the Holy ghost to us who saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy ghost. I was the um, um, filthy rags comes from Isaiah 64, six, but that he uh, washed us through the regeneration and renewing of the Holy ghost. That's Titus chapter three, verse five. And the Holy ghost by virtue of his work in our hearts will present us, will present the church as a chaste, Virgin to Christ. We will be presented as a chaste virgin to Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2. And as such, as we see set before us here, we will be very fair to look upon and have always been so to the loving eyes of our God who loves the bride of Christ. He Mm -hmm. loves the bride of Christ the same way he loves his son. That's John, of course, chapter 17, verses 23 and 24. God loves us the same way he loves his son, Jesus. From eternity past, all through the present and into the future, he loves us with an everlasting love, the same love that he loves his son. And we, indeed, when we're presented to him, will be presented as chaste virgins set apart from the world, and that's the language he uses there, and, and so much as she never a, was known by a man, she was set apart. So meaning that in a context of sanctification, we have been positionally sanctified in Christ before the Father, since before the foundation of the world. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, it says that, speaking of us, we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Just as a Rebecca is appointed by the Lord, she is the appointed woman that the um, servant will go to. And we know that because we had read in Genesis chapter 22, her name was come up as one of the descendants of... Abraham's brother. So he foreknew her and knows who he's going to, uh, where the um, servant is going to go. He knows how this is all going to play out. So we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit set apart, sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. Now, as I said before, Rebecca. She was known of Abraham. In Genesis 22, 23, she is mentioned by name. She was known of Abraham before he sent his elder servant to Mesopotamia, the Holy Ghost, to find a bride for his son. In like manner, God the Father hath chosen us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That's Ephesians chapter one, verse four. In other words, before the foundation of the world, God had set us apart unto Himself, seeing us as very fair to look upon. As the promised land was far removed from Mesopotamia, it's about 500 miles distance. It's a long journey on foot and on camels. As there is this great gulf between them, is a great separation between them, so too is the great distance between the heavenly glory where Christ is now, having been resurrected and ascended, as we see Isaac, is, as far as we know, he's still up on Mount Moriah when this is taking place, um, and where the Holy Ghost is now adorning the bride of Christ, calling her out of this Babylonish world. So we see in the scriptures that Christ is up in heaven, in glory with the father. It's the Holy Ghost that's going out in the world. As the Lord says in John chapter three, that the wind bloweth where it listeth. Speaking of the Holy Ghost, that it goes where it wants to, obviously in union, in terms of purpose with God, the father and goes into those people and saves them, cleans them up to present them as a chaste virgin, adorning them, with uh, the things of Christ. We are partakers of the divine nature. Now, um, as we read in uh, verse 6 here of Genesis 24, um, and Abraham said unto him, Beware that thou bringest not my son thither again. Just as we read here about don't bring my son back there again, meaning don't bring Isaac back to Babylon, neither to Shall Christ return to this earth, this Babylonian earth, this present evil world? Neither is he going to return here to live with his bride. So there's something here about eschatology in terms of people thinking that Christ is coming back to Jerusalem, this present evil world, and he's going to rule from a physical temple on Mount Moriah there in Jerusalem. That's not going to happen. He's telling us here, don't bring my son back there. And what does scripture say about Christ coming in terms of his bride? Well it says he shall meet his bride in the air. That's first Thessalonians chapter four, verse seventeen. We shall be caught up together with them that sleep in Jesus, those that have predeceased us, and in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. He's gonna destroy this planet. We know that says it in Second Peter chapter three. He's gonna burn this whole place up and create a new heaven and a new earth, wherein dwelleth no sin, a very glorious place, and that's where the bride is going to dwell with um. The groom, Christ, in a glorified heaven and earth, a new heaven and new earth, not this Babylonish world. Um, oh, this idea of meeting the bride, um, meeting Christ, um, is alluded to in the narrative in verses 63 and 64 of Genesis 24. And I'll read that. In verse 63 it says, And Isaac went out to meditate in the field at the eventide which we would recall is the time of the resurrection of Christ. He went into the tomb at evening, three days and three nights later. He comes out of the tomb at evening, so we have a resurrection here. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field at the eventide, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, the camels were coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she lighted off the camel. She gets off of the camel, the unclean beast. And when she had said unto her servant, What man is this that walketh in the field to meet us? And the servant said, it is my master. Therefore, she took a veil and covered herself. Um, So we can appreciate that as the bride of Christ, when she comes upon her husband, she's off the unclean beast. We have put off this um, corruptible body. And uh, we know that she is adored with jewels of silver and jewels of gold. Because in verse 53, that is what is said the servant puts on her. In verse 53, and the servant brought forth jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment and gave them unto Rebekah. So raiment, of course, and all of these wonderful things come from Abraham. They come from God the Father, and they are evidences of Isaac's glory, who is heir of all and also evidence of the wonderful blessings that uh, they have from the Father. Now, in like manner, we, the bride of Christ, will greatly rejoice in the Lord. Our soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed us with the garments of salvation. He hath covered us with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decketh with and as a bride adorneth with her jewels. And so we read about that language in Isaiah chapter, I think it's chapter 61, verse 10, um, about how God is adorning us. He's placed on us the garments of salvation, the robe of righteousness, which we see here with respect to what the servant places on Rebecca, who, of course, represents the church. And she receives jewels, just as. Christ will uh, place jewels upon us. And so what we see here is the opposite of what takes place in Western society, where the father of the bride pays for everything. In the Bible, it's the father of the groom who presents a dowry to the woman. And, of course, what is the dowry that Christ presented his church with but the life of his son? And that is the dowry that we have received. He paid a very heavy price for his bride, and the price he paid was um, the life of his son when he died on the cross, with whose blood he washed us and made us clean. When Rebecca is presented in verse 65, um, we note that she then covers herself with a veil. And so as the bride of Christ, we too in this world are veiled. We are, are covered. In First John 3, chapter 2, it says that it doth not yet appear what we shall be, But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So we're presently in these corruptible bodies, um, and yet we have this wonderful treasure of the uh, knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ placed in our hearts. People cannot see that when they look at us. I pray they can see some of Christ in us through the works that we do, because the Lord says that he would desire that our good works would glorify him when people see the things that we do. So we would certainly want them to do that. But it does not appear what we are, actually, and that will not appear until such time as Christ comes and receives us to himself. So when the two come together, when the bride and the groom are met, we read that the eldest servant, in verse 66, gives witness to the son of Abraham, all that he hath done. And we can expect the Holy Ghost, of course, continually witnesses with Christ what's going on in our hearts because he's inside us. And we have this wonderful relationship with God through Christ and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We see in verse 67 that Isaac brings Rebekah into his mother's tents and he consummates the marriage and she becomes his wife just as we will in, in Revelation 19 come together for the wedding feast of the Lord when everything is brought to consummation um, at the end of the age. So this morning, there are many things I wanted us to appreciate. I want us to appreciate that we are in this Babylonian world, this evil world, and God has sent his Holy Spirit unto us, which the Lord says is the comforter. And Jesus says he's not going to send it, and send it to us until he goes away. And so we see here conspicuously that Isaac is absent when this Servant goes out, typifying the Holy Ghost being sent forth. So God has come to his elect. He's come to his people. He's come to people appointed unto salvation, which is us. It's all a work of him. And he has adorned us with uh, a portion of the dowry. We have an earnest deposit of that through the Holy Spirit. We read about that in Ephesians, um, about how we've received the earnest deposit of the Spirit. And... um, he has bought us with a price. He has paid a dowry, even the life of his son. And this will come to fruition, having received the dowry just as surely as Rebecca, once she had received those um, wonderful uh, signs of Isaac's glory um, and Abraham's glory that she would indeed be willing. And so at a manifestation of that is the mother and the son, they go ask her, are you willing to go? And what does she say? Verse fifty eight I will go. She has a willing heart, her heart having been made willing um, by the angel of the Lord that preceded them. You can imagine what a thing that would have been to be Rebecca in the house, 500 miles away. You've got a servant here. Is he really from Abraham? Is he really from Isaac? And you're going to mm-hmm. give your daughter and she's going to go 500 miles away. You know, in this, in this kind of a world we live in, particularly there in the Babylonian world, Um, how evil people are that they would consent to that and we'll talk about later they they want to hinder that process but nevertheless she has her heart has been made willing by the Lord and I have never met a Christian who after running from the Lord uh, and had the Holy Ghost uh, uh, impress biblical truths on their heart I have never met somebody that was not willing Um, God makes our hearts willing he woos us with his love He places uh, biblical truths and godly truths in our heart and then we become uh, willing. We willfully worship him. We willfully love him. uh, We willfully come to church and we willfully give up things that we have done in the past because we take no pleasure in them. We take pleasure in the things of the Lord now. And that is because we are new creatures in Christ because he has given us a new heart, a heart that loves him as he loves us. And so we'll close with that. Amen and we